When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is season two of Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Tacoma, Washington. Tacoma is a port city situated along Commencement Bay in Washington's Puget Sound. The area was inhabited for thousands of years by Native Americans, most recently by the Puyallup people. The name Tacoma was an indigenous name for the snow-capped volcano to the southeast that explorer George Vancouver called Mount Rainier. Tacoma was incorporated in 1875 and became locally known as the City of Destiny because the city was chosen to be the western terminus of the Northern Pacific Railroad in the late 19th century. The decision of the railroad's location was influenced by the fact that Commencement Bay was a deep-water harbor. By connecting the bay with the railroad, Tacoma's motto became, When Rails Meet Sails. The city of Tacoma has an active municipal historic preservation program, which includes over a thousand properties. The city also enjoys museums, film festivals, breweries, and the popular attraction Shakespeare in the Parking Lot, where the motto is, Taking the Fear Out of Shakespeare. Outdoor enthusiasts can use the waterfront to walk, run, or cycle. There are several popular beaches along Ruston Way, some of which are also popular for scuba diving. There are over 50 beautiful parks and open spaces for the public to enjoy. But the parks did not always bring joy to local residents. In 1986, the disappearance of one young girl from a local park left her family devastated. As the case went cold, we are reminded that as memories fade and loved ones die, society must always seek justice for its victims. On Monday, August 4, 1986, 13-year-old Jennifer Bastian, who went by Jenny, was enjoying her summer before school started. She spent the morning hanging out with her mom and talking about her upcoming 100-mile YMCA bike trip to Lopez Island, which was the third largest of the San Juan Islands located off the western coast of Washington State. Jenny was very athletic. She loved gymnastics, softball, and water skiing, but she was also very petite. At 13, she was 4 foot 10 and weighed about 85 pounds. Jenny was training every day on her brand new 18-speed touring bike to prepare for the 100-mile trip. For the first few weeks, she added towels to the saddlebags on her bike to mimic the added weight of the camping gear she'd be taking with her. But on that Monday, she felt she was ready to increase the weight and added bricks to her saddlebags. About 2 p.m. that afternoon, Jenny left a note for her parents that she was going to go on a training ride at nearby Point Defiance Park, which was about two miles away from her home. In the note, she told her parents that she was going to be riding on Five Mile Drive in the park and would be home by 6.30 p.m. When she was not home by 8 p.m., her parents started calling Jenny's friends and some of their neighbors to see if maybe she had dropped by their house on the way home and just lost track of time. By 9 p.m., her worried parents called the police to report her missing. Kathy read somewhere that her dad, Ralph, went to report her to the police and they said, hey, she probably ran away. 
you know what's funny though kath is that was a very like 70s and 80s thing totally. to say i mean the missing persons cases we've read about or right. seen on the news it was that's the default right exactly but what was interesting kath is when they talked to him mr bastion was adamant that she did not run away mm-hmm. honestly the note that she left i think really would have been the best example of that because it was so responsible and detailed. Exactly. Yeah, exactly responsible thing to do when you were 13 would you have written a note like that no but you probably would have <laughs> can neither confirm nor deny that (laughs) (laughs) but i know she would (laughs) have but mr bastion actually told the police that his daughter was exceptional and dependable and i just i love the quote it said that he held his daughter in really high esteem according to tacoma police spokesperson chris taylor police began searching for jenny that night They brought trained bloodhounds to the home that quickly picked up on her scent and followed it directly to Five Mile Drive in Point Defiance Park. Chris Taylor said police officers looked in the area the dogs alerted on but were unable to find any trace of Jenny. And unfortunately, once the dogs were on Five Mile Drive, the scents were not strong enough to either lead them into the park further or determine whether or not she was still there. The next morning, the search for Jenny continued. Point Defiance is a massive park. It's 700 acres, and it was basically a forest surrounded on three sides by water. If you look at pictures, it's beautiful. And it has these huge cliffs that are just overlooking the water that are great outlooks. It's stunning. The bloodhounds went back with their handlers and tried again to pick up Jenny's scent. The interior of the park grounds were searched by helicopter, and since the park is surrounded by Puget Sound, searchers also set out on boats to check the shoreline for any sign of her. After not finding any clues on their second day of searching, the next day, authorities closed the park to continue the search. Tacoma Police Lieutenant Richard Williams said friends and family members were being interviewed to see if they might know something about Jenny's disappearance. Tacoma residents were beginning to worry that Jenny's disappearance might be related to another kidnapping and murder that shocked the community five months earlier. On March 26, 1986, 12-year-old Michelle Welch and her two younger sisters, Angela and Nicole, rode their bikes to Puget Park. As soon as they got there, they realized they forgot their picnic lunch at home, so Michelle offered to go home and get it and left her sisters there. Like a responsible sister, she was handling it. And honestly, Kath, I could see you doing that for your two younger sisters. Yeah, maybe. No, you totally would. (laughs) I actually would. But mostly because your younger sister would refuse to go. (laughs) And the middle sister would want to keep the peace. The middle sister would want to stay with the younger sister. (laughs) After Michelle rode off to get their lunch, her sisters went to a nearby ravine to play, and when they returned, they saw Michelle's bike was back, and the sandwiches were on the picnic table where they left their things, but they could not find Michelle. Nicole and Angela would never see their sister again. Kath, what I thought was interesting and pretty cool was that the sisters explained to the police that they had what they called a family call. And it was basically a way to alert other members of the family. So like if the kids were running around in the neighborhood, the mom would do this family call and the kids would know to come home. Or if they were like all at a carnival and kind of got split up, they would be able to get it. Exactly. So they basically described it to the police officers as a loud yelp. So when the little girls couldn't find their sister, they began doing their family call throughout the park and she never returned the signal. Oh, I know. But I think it's cool that they had a family call. 
Now, tragically, a search and rescue team that was looking for Michelle found her body in Puget Park about 10 hours later. She had been sexually assaulted and beaten to death. Now, the reason that the community was worried that Jenny Bastian's disappearance might be related to Michelle's disappearance as well. Mm -hmm. They were both young, athletic girls with blonde hair and blue eyes. But not only that, Puget Park, where Michelle was found, and Point Defiance Park, where Jenny went missing, were only two miles apart from each other. Police spokesperson Chris Taylor told the press that the police were not discounting suspicions that the same person who kidnapped Michelle had struck again. However, at the time Chris Taylor spoke to reporters, the cases had not been officially linked. According to an article in the Tacoma News Tribune by Elaine Porterfield and Bill Ripple, there were 170 search and rescue team members and law enforcement officers who scoured the park by foot, on horseback, on ATVs, in pickup trucks, and with tracking dogs. The search and rescue teams came from four nearby counties and joined Tacoma Police, the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, and Metropolitan Park Police to conduct an extensive side-by-side search. Kath, what I read is that, you know, you mentioned this is a 700-acre park. They were doing a grid search and they were essentially next to each other, but they were within eyesight of the person to their left or right. So it wasn't like they were within arm's arm's length. length. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think they were just trying to cover as much ground as possible, but it's also a forest. So how many people were searching? Do you have any idea? They said there was about 200. Okay. Okay. You can't search a 700 acre park arm to arm with 200 people. After combing the park for most of the day, it was reported that the searchers did not find any trace of Jenny. Chris Taylor said police officials would begin going door to door along Jenny's probable route to the park to try and gather more information. While the authorities and volunteers searched the park, Jenny's friends were also helping. Her softball teammates and her friends from school put up flyers around town. And another friend who was going to California planned to put up flyers all along Interstate 5. In a News Tribune article by Lila Fujimoto, Jenny's mother, Patricia Bastian, said that her daughter's friends were doing the most tremendous job anyone could hope for, but it did not lessen her agony waiting for news. The Tacoma Police Department also distributed 2,500 flyers with Jenny's picture and a description, and Mr. Bastian's employer, United Airlines, distributed another 2,000 flyers across the country. At a news conference in Point Defiance Park, four days after she went missing. Which, by the way, Kath, this was Jenny's dad's birthday. Oh, how painful. The Tacoma police detectives released a composite sketch of a possible suspect in Jenny's disappearance. The sketch was based on a description provided by a witness who said the man was riding his bike behind Jenny on Five Mile Drive. The witness said the man appeared to be following her, and the suspect was described as a white male between 25 and 30 years of age, about six foot two, with a medium build, black hair, and tanned complexion. Jenny's parents and her older sister, Teresa, who was 15 at the time, spoke to reporters briefly at a news conference. They said they were very grateful for all of the volunteers and organizations that helped in the search, donated food and supplies, and helped publicize Jenny's disappearance. Teresa also asked people to take the time and remember back on anything they might have seen that could be connected to her sister's disappearance. You know, Kath, the other interesting thing with this press conference Teresa was on an episode of A&E's Cold Case Files recently, Mm -hmm. and she said in this episode that after Jenny disappeared, her family was given the impression that the police thought somebody had kidnapped Jenny and were expecting them to call the family for a ransom. 
So Teresa said this whole press conference, the remarks given by the police and by the Bastion family were aimed at this unknown kidnapper. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As the weeks passed, police followed up on additional leads. In addition to the man in the sketch, detectives were also looking for a black van seen in the area and a man using a video camera. Dude, in 1986, <laughs> that thing would have weighed like 55 pounds. It would have been like the size of a truck. <laughs> totally. Up on his shoulder. Exactly. <laughs> it would have been. <laughs> Despite such an image, none of these leads panned out. Three weeks after Jenny's disappearance, a jogger reported to police that he smelled a strong, noxious odor while running through Point Defiance Park. Park police brought in Tacoma police to help them search the area, and the Tacoma police brought a police dog that was untrained in searching for bodies. They were unable to find the source of the odor. The next day, Tacoma police returned with tracking dogs and found Jenny's body around 3 p.m. Tacoma police spokesperson Chris Taylor said Jenny's body was found under high brush that partially covered it. Someone would have to walk right up to the body to see it. Taylor also said that the area where the body was found had been searched at least once during the massive hunt for Jenny. There were marking ties on the trees about 30 feet from where she was found, which would have come from these searchers. It was obvious to investigators that Jenny had been sexually assaulted based on the position of her body and the position of her clothing when she was found. Due to the level of decomposition, it was impossible to tell for certain how she was killed, but they did find a ligature around her neck. Late Friday night, medical examiner Emmanuel Laxina, who actually Kath was recalled from military leave to perform this autopsy, confirmed that Jenny had died from strangulation. Jenny's mother, Patricia Bastion, said on the Cold Case Files episode referenced earlier that on the day Jenny's body was found, she was painting her dining room to distract her from the search of her daughter. And Kath, a Tacoma police officer, a detective specifically, was assigned to be the liaison to the Bastion family. And every morning he would go and he would tell them, this is what we're going to do today to try to find your daughter. And he would just give them a briefing. Then at night he would return and tell them, this is what we did today. This is what we discovered. And this is what we're going to probably do, you know. He would just update them. I read about the liaison. I think that's amazing. I don't know if that's standard protocol. I have no idea. But but what a gift to the family. Such a gift. So anyway, this guy comes and knocks on her door at noon while she's painting. And she immediately knows something is wrong because he never came in the middle of the day. So she said she was on a ladder in her dining room and the detective walked over, took the paintbrush out of her hand, helped her down from the ladder and led her to a chair He told her to sit down and then gave her the crushing news that her daughter's body was found. I don't think I would have wanted to hear it. I know. And she said in this A&E episode that she knew what he was going to say. On Wednesday, September 3rd, 1986, almost a month after Jenny disappeared, Tacoma police detectives formed a task force to investigate her murder along with the murder of 12-year-old Michelle Welch. According to an article in the News Tribune by Dan Vopel, a six-member task force headed by Tacoma Police Sergeant Stan Maurer would work full-time on the investigation into both homicides. The task force was deemed necessary because of the lack of information in the two cases. Jenny's obituary was in the Tacoma News Tribune. 
It said she was a member of the Truman Junior High School Senior Band and was active in gymnastics at Truman Junior High on the All-City Team and the YMCA. She also belonged to the Cleats Fast Pitch Softball Team, and Kath Cleats was spelled K-L-E-A-T-S. That's so cute. <laughs> that was cute, too. <laughs> Jenny was survived by her parents, Ralph and Patricia, her sister, Teresa, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother. I can't possibly imagine the death of a child. I can't possibly imagine grandparents having a grandchild die. Like, or that's, a great-grandparent. That's insane to me. That's total suffering. The funeral service for Jennifer Marie Bastion was held at St. Charles Borromeo Catholic Church just over one month after she rode her bike to Point Defiance Park. More than 1,300 mourners attended the service and paid tributes to Jenny. Many who attended were classmates and friends. The pallbearers, Kath, were seven boys who went to school with her. Oh, can you imagine eighth grade pallbearers? No, I really can't. And her softball teammates formed an honor guard. There were also a lot of police officers in attendance, but most of them weren't in uniform. Kathy, on this a Cold Case Files episode, mm-hmm. Mrs. Bastian said that as she looked at the mourners, a lot of them, of course, as we said, were Jenny's friends. But she said she was really surprised at the number of police officers who were there, not as a member of the police department, but rather as members of the community who were going on this horrible journey with her. Totally just paying their respects. Right. Now, the other thing, Kath, you know, you were talking about this police department liaison who was assigned to the Bastion family. The Tacoma police chaplain visited the Bastion family every single day. Hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Bastion were both quoted in the press as saying how much comfort he brought to them during this time. So not surprisingly, he was actually the person who gave Jenny's eulogy. Oh, nice. He told the story about Jenny and Teresa. So Teresa was two years older than Jenny. Mm -hmm. And when it was time for Jenny to learn to read, she was having nothing to do with it. And when her parents said, why don't you want to learn to read? She said, Teresa will read anything that I want her to. Oh, my God. And I was like, awesome. I love that. She's like, nope, I got all the books I need. My sister's going to read them. I'm good. That is awesome. But I thought it was a really cute story to share that is about so, the family. That's darling. I didn't want to read either, but it was just because I couldn't. I remember throwing the book. It was called The Firefly. We were taken out to the lunch benches, this small group of readers who couldn't freaking read. And I just remember throwing the book on the blacktop. I couldn't get it. It took me a long time to learn to read. Which is so hard to believe considering how intelligent you are, how voracious a reader you are, and the fact that you're an attorney. Maybe I was trying to make up for it. (laughs) I think you might have been, but holy cow. It gave me an insecurity complex. It was a slow start. But you know what? Seriously, like I did not read for pleasure until like fifth grade when I started hanging around the smart kids. This is what I used to do. They were total Agatha Christie fans and I didn't read, like I said, for enjoyment. I would take an Agatha Christie book of my mom's because my mom was a voracious reader. I would read like five pages and then I would interject in the story and I'd be like, oh my God, you guys remember when this happened? And they'd be like, yeah, you know, I was a fraud. (laughs) I was a faker. Probably until about sixth grade when I got into like Stephen King and Dean Koontz. But yeah, I was a fraud for a long time. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Did you ever rat yourself out or did they find you out? No, I never ratted. No way, man. No, huh? Mm. Snitches get stitches. That's exactly right. (laughs) During the investigation into Jenny and Michelle's deaths, Tacoma police got help from the Green River Task Force in following up on a number of incoming tips. 
Now you guys know the Green River Killer was, um, what was his name? Gary Ridgway. And he was active in Tacoma at the time in the greater Washington area, actually. And he killed sex workers over the course of, I don't know, probably 15 or so years. So now's probably a pretty good time to talk about the vast number of serial killers oh from God. Washington totally. State. Totally. Even Tacoma. Ted Bundy lived in Tacoma. Ted Bundy. Yeah. He, I don't think he was born there, but he lived there as a kid. Which I think it answers the whole nature versus nurture <laughs> thing. <laughs> And there was another guy who also killed sex workers, uh, I believe. Robert Lee Yates. Yes. And he was active earlier. I think it was like, I don't know, 75 to late 80s, early 90s. Know. Tacoma police detective Miller said that they had a suspect early on in Jenny's murder, and he was known to live out of his van, and he parked a lot at Point Defiance Park. Once this individual was identified as a potential suspect, detectives detained him, they talked to him, and they searched his van. And during the course of the search, they discovered a wooden mallet that was relatively close in size to the injuries Michelle Welch sustained on her head. And in addition, they found drawings that had juvenile females in sexually explicit positions. But nothing was found that connected this guy to the deaths of Jennifer or Michelle, either directly or indirectly, Kath. Anyway, later the man voluntarily provided a DNA sample and detectives were able to exclude him because it did not match the DNA found in Michelle's case. No DNA had been collected from Jenny's body. But since the police thought Jenny and Michelle's murders were connected, they excluded this man from being a suspect in Jenny's death as well. In June 1987, 10 months after Jenny Bastian was killed, police announced another person of interest in the case. This man's name was Gerald Arthur Friend, and he was arrested in the city of Yakima, which was about 150 miles southeast of Tacoma, for the rape and torture of a 14-year-old girl and being a felon in possession of a firearm. Okay, we cannot call him Friend. We're going to read. Yeah, we're going to refer to him as Jerry. Okay, Jerry we can do. Sergeant Stan Maurer, who was the detective in charge of this police task force looking into Jenny's and Michelle Welsh's murder, said Jerry became a person of interest by virtue of who he is, what he was accused of having done to this 14-year-old girl, and what he had done before. So 49-year-old Jerry had been paroled six and a half years prior after serving 20 years of a life sentence for a horrendous attack on a 12-year-old girl in 1960. And we're not going to go into details because it's truly horrific. Horrible. But it was very similar to what happened to this 14-year-old girl in Yakima in 1987. Now, according to an affidavit that was submitted after the girl was able to speak to detectives, she told them that when she arrived at Jerry's mobile home, he told her that if she misbehaved, she would be going home in a body bag. Oh. Now, we're not going to tell you what he did to her as well because... Again, too much. Too graphic. Too much. Absolutely. Yep. But afterward, Jerry handcuffed and gagged this 14-year-old girl, put her in the back seat of his car, and told her to stay down. She truly believed, and I think with good reason, that she was going to be killed. Jerry had to stop for gasp, and she escaped. I love that. I do, too. I mean, she's handcuffed, she's gagged, and she figures a way out of the car and runs to safety. Right. Good for her. As a result of what the 14-year-old told detectives, Tacoma detectives doubled down on their efforts to connect Jerry to Michelle and Jenny's murders. Mm-hmm. Jerry had pleaded not guilty to the first-degree kidnapping and first-degree rape charges, but ultimately he was convicted and sentenced to 75 years in prison for the crime. This was back in 1987, so knowing Washington's history, I checked. <laughs> oh, you did the inmate locator? I did the inmate locator, and okay. he is 84 years old and still in prison in Washington State. Good. 
However, Jerry was never connected to Jenny's and Michelle's murders. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. By the summer of 1987, the year after Jenny and Michelle were murdered, tips had stopped coming in and the cases went cold. Fast forward to the fall of 2008, 22 years after their murders, and Tacoma Detective Gene Miller, who was one of the original investigators signed to their cases, started the Tacoma Police Department's cold case unit. The department had over 200 unsolved murder cases and long-term missing persons cases at that time. When Detective Miller began putting the cold case unit together, finding who murdered Jenny and Michelle was a top priority for the department. So, Detective Miller started compiling information on all the unsolved homicides that took place in the city in 1986. He identified two additional victims who had been raped and murdered that year. So four in total in 1986. Correct. That's crazy. Exactly. For people in this demographic. Right. So one victim was 17-year-old Denise Sally, and she went missing in Tacoma in January of 1986, and her body was found just a few days after Michelle was killed. The other murdered girl was 16-year-old Kimberly Payne, who was killed in October of 1986. 
So as Detective Miller investigated the murders of the four girls, he realized that the original investigators referenced one man in their case notes several times. His name was Timothy Burkhart. At the time of the four murders, Burkhart was 20 years old. And looking into his criminal history, Detective Miller discovered that there was a case where Burkhart was looked at for an attempted abduction about a year and a half before Denise was murdered. And as Detective Miller looked further, he learned that Burkhart was listed as a suspect in two homicides that occurred years later in 2001. So obviously now alarm bells are going off. So what Detective Miller realized was that in 2001, the state crime lab recovered DNA evidence from Denise Sally's and Kimberly Payne's crime scenes and that Burkhart's DNA matched both victims. However, it did not match the profile from Michelle Welch, which led detectives to exclude Jenny Bastian as being one of his victims. Miller also learned that Burkhart committed suicide in 2001, so Denise and Kimberly's cases were never fully adjudicated, and the families did not receive the justice they deserved. In January of 2013, this is now more than 26 years after Jenny Bastian's murder, Detective Miller recruited Detective Lindsay Wade, whom he worked with in the Sexual Assault Sex Crimes Unit, to join his cold case unit. Now, the Jenny Bastian case was something that Detective Wade remembered when she was growing up. She had been 11 years old, so just two years younger than Jenny was when she disappeared, and they both grew up in Tacoma. And she remembered the case, Kath. Yeah, she absolutely did. She said as a child, what happened kind of impacted a lot of kids' lives. Parents were scared. Oh, yeah. And so the freedoms that they enjoyed were limited now because mm -hmm. the parents didn't want to take a risk. Right. Detective Wade said on this Cold Case Files episode that for her and a lot of her friends, this was the very first time they realized that there were actually really bad people out in the world. She also said that there was this one particular route that she took to school where there was a wooded area and she started walking on the other side of the street because she was afraid that some guy would jump out and grab her. So when she became a detective and the cold case unit was formed, she was very interested in working with Detective Miller and trying to find out who killed Jenny and Michelle. That is so cool. Now, Detective Wade was advised by forensics experts in the department to submit Jenny's swimsuit to the state crime lab in order to obtain her DNA profile for future comparison. So, Kath, you and I were talking about this. Exactly. To kind of understand better what they were looking for. Right. It was interesting to us that they were choosing her DNA. However, they were operating under the assumption that this is a multiple murderer and perhaps he kept items specific to the victims. Like a trophy. Yeah. Right. That is our assumption. That was the only thing we could come up with. Exactly. So the cold case unit submitted Jenny's swimsuit. And a few months later, when the lab called back, Detective Miller took the call. Mm -hmm. And the person from the lab asked him, well, I know that you were looking for Jenny's DNA, but were you also interested in the male DNA found in the crotch of Jenny's swimsuit? Damn. I bet he climbed through the phone and was like, hell yes, I am. <laughs> they were shocked. Right. They were shook. <laughs> I wish you all could see Kathy's face right now. <laughs> Detective Miller's response was, of course, we want this male DNA. When they received the profile afterward, they checked it immediately against the profile they had from Michelle Welsh's murder. Remember, they had been able to collect DNA from her from some unknown male. Right. And it did not match. So that was their second shock of the day. Because remember, we've talked about it. For decades, they believed that these two murders were connected. Exactly. They did. 
And the detectives actually at Kathy also submitted this profile to CODIS, but there was no match in the CODIS database to whoever this DNA profile belonged to. At the end of 2014, Detective Miller decided to retire from the Tacoma Police Department. And when he did, Detective Lindsey Wade became the lead detective of the cold case unit. So what I read, Kath, was when Detective Miller retired, what he said of Detective Wade was, if you're a bad guy, you do not want her in your rearview mirror because she will not quit. Isn't that such a compliment? Absolute compliment. Yeah. In January 2015... Now, more than 28 years since Jenny was killed, Detective Wade realized that they had tons of information about her case, but nothing pointing them in the right direction. So Detective Wade undertook the overwhelming task of creating a database to compile an accurate and detailed list of every single male that appeared in Jennifer and Michelle's cases and enter them into a database. And Kath, she left no stone unturned. She was basically like, oh, you're the guy who made a phone call giving a tip and you're a man. Your name is on the list. You're the postal worker we interviewed on that day. Your name is on the list. Any male connected with either of the two cases went into a database. And ultimately, at the end of it, there were over 2,300 names. Even though it's been 28 years, that is crazy. I know. Good for her. I agree. This is the person that you want. You want dogged determination. And she was working smart. Instead of just picking up a caseload and like running off and talking to someone, she organized it. She knew who they were, what they said, what they contributed. Did they have DNA contributed? And she's like, okay, here's why I start. The other reason that she did this, Kath, though, is that, remember, they thought Michelle's and Jennifer's cases were connected. Right. They had all these men who had been cleared because they didn't match the profile in Michelle Welch's murder. Right. They now had to cross-check all of these profiles against this new DNA profile in Jenny Bastian's murder. Exactly. And so one of the things that Detective Way did was like, you know what, not only are we going to be resubmitting the DNA samples that we had, we are going to try to get DNA samples from everyone on my list. Like she wanted to just go wide and just see who was willing to voluntarily donate DNA. So in the summer of 2015, Detective Wade learned about a murder case in Arizona where a woman named Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick with Parabon Nanolabs. We all know Parabon. Exactly. Helped solve some cold cases from the early 1990s. Detective Wade called the Arizona detective and asked how Dr. Fitzpatrick was able to help with these cold cases. And he explained this, you know, new and developing genetic genealogy. And of course, she was intrigued. She's wanting DNA results from different people, but she's also wanting an expansive approach with respect to Michelle's and Jenny's murder. So she's like, oh, maybe genetic genealogy will work here as well. So Detective Wade, who is now working with the FBI, was able to get funding to actually use Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick in her investigation. The Tacoma Police Department gave Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick DNA from Jenny's bathing suit and Parabon Nanolabs broke it down and created a DNA profile. From that DNA profile, they used genealogy databases to come up with three potential last names for the suspect. Smith, Holbrook, and Washburn. That's freaking crazy. Isn't that incredible? In the database Detective Wade created, there was no one in the case file named Holbrook. But there was a guy named Robert Washburn who called in a tip in Michelle's case three months after her murder. 
He told detectives that he often jogged in parks and he had seen someone while jogging that made him suspicious and he thought it was someone the police should take a look at. In the case file, the detective who answered the phone did not note anything unusual about Washburn during the call. But because he was listed in Detective Wade's database with 2,300 men, she already put him on a list as somebody who she wanted to collect DNA from. So, Kath, what was interesting is they showed the notes from the detective who answered this tip line call from Robert Washburn. At the bottom of it, it's actually written, seems normal, no concerns. Oh, that's interesting. Because, you know, I'm sure they get wackos who call in all the time. Or people who insert themselves into the investigation. Exactly. That type of thing. And so, so that's what was written on there. Seems normal. That's interesting. And no concerns. So it's now March of 2017. And as we mentioned, Kath, Detective Wade had been working with the FBI and the FBI discovered that Robert Washburn was living in Illinois. He was divorced and was responsible for taking care of his disabled daughter. At the request of the Tacoma police, Illinois FBI agents contacted Washburn and told him they were asking people to voluntarily provide a DNA sample so that they could be eliminated as a suspect of two murders that had happened in Washington state in 1986. Without any questions or any concerns, Robert Washburn agreed to provide the sample. We had talked about the 2300 strong database and Detective Wade had this list of men from whom she wanted to get DNA samples. As she was collecting these DNA samples, she would put multiple samples together in a batch and send them off to the state crime lab. The first and second batches she sent in came back with no match. And Detective Wade said that she was actually beginning to doubt now that they would ever find Jennifer's killer. Uh In January of 2018, Detective Wade sent the final 18 samples that she had gathered to the crime lab. It was also the last batch she sent Kath because three months later, she left the Tacoma Police Department to take a job with the Washington State Attorney General's office. Mm -hmm. So now it's almost a month after Detective Wade has left the police department and almost 32 years after Jenny Bastian's murder. Detective Wade received an early morning phone call from the detective who took over the cold case unit. They had gotten a match on the DNA in Jennifer Bastian's case. The match was Robert Washburn. I can't imagine how excited Detective Wade was when she heard there was a match. And now she's like, wait a second, I just left. (laughs) Don't take my glory. I worked so hard for this. Exactly. That belongs to me. (laughs) So what she actually did is she went straight to the police station to help the detectives in the cold case unit start pulling together additional information on Robert Washburn. That is so cool. It really is. They learned that Robert Washburn had graduated from high school in the Tacoma area and worked for a while as an engineer at Boeing before moving to Illinois. At the time of Jenny's murder, he was living just nine blocks from the Bastion family. As soon as Washburn's arrest was confirmed, Detective Wade and a Tacoma Police Department assistant chief drove to the Bastion home. Detective Wade said that as soon as Mrs. Bastion opened the door, she knew why she was there. Aww. Detective Wade said she'd been practicing this speech in her head the whole way over. And when Mrs. Bastion opened the door, the only thing that came out of her mouth was, we got him. Oh my God, that's so cool. Detective Wade said that she and Mrs. Bastion stood on the porch and just hugged and cried. Of course. I could totally see that, you know, where she's trying to think of the perfect words to say. And she sees the mom and it all falls out of her brain. It all just becomes emotion. It becomes raw. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks after Robert Washburn's arrest, on May 24th, 2018, he was arraigned and charged with first-degree murder. Kath, he was only 27 years old at the time Jenny Bastian was killed. 
In the Cold Case Files episode, Jenny's older sister, Teresa, said the thought of a trial was actually her biggest fear because her mother was in Tacoma all by herself. Mr. Bastian had passed away just three years earlier. Mrs. Bastian said the thought of a trial for her was difficult because she feared that Washburn might have something to say that she did not want to know. Trial was set for 2019, but three months after the arraignment, the family received a call from the prosecutor saying they thought Washburn was ready to agree to a plea deal. There would be no trial, and given Washburn's age, he was 61 at the time, it would likely mean that he would be in prison for the rest of his life. On January 25th, 2019, 32 years and five months after Jenny's murder, Robert Washburn was sentenced. Mrs. Bastian and her daughter Teresa were present in the courtroom. Teresa said being in the same room with Washburn was impactful, but left a lot to be desired because he did not make eye contact with any of the family members. Mrs. Bastian made a statement in court that was directed at him, and she said, in part, For us, normalcy disappeared on August 4th, the day you decided, Washburn, would be a good day to savagely murder our 13-year-old girl. Not a day went by in a normal way. You stole that from us. No longer were we able to look at beautiful summer days the same way. And Kath, this entire time, Washburn never raised his head. He just kept a super stoic disposition. And, you know, not only not being able to look at a summer day the same way again, Teresa had said that after Jenny was murdered, she never rode a bike again in her entire life. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. Detective Wade was also present at sentencing, and she said there was not a dry eye in the courtroom from the judge to the camera people to the gallery. She said she remembered Mrs. Bastian addressing Washburn, saying, Do you know how many birthdays we missed? How many Christmases we missed? And again, Kath, this guy did not react. And so Detective Wade basically said, It takes a psychopath not to tear up. In the courtroom, Washburn said nothing other than to answer Judge Elizabeth Martin's questions with a yes or a no. Now, Kath, I am assuming because this was a plea deal and a sentencing that she had to say, you know, you understand you're accused of this crime and it was rape and murder. And you had to say yes, 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 that kind of thing. So I'm assuming those are the kind of questions she asked him just to clarify the confession. He did not make any kind of statement, but left it to the judge to read his statement aloud. And it basically said, quote, I am deeply sorry for the death of Jennifer. I recognize there is little that my words can do to diminish the tremendous sense of pain and loss that this crime caused to many people, end quote. That's it. And which is why Teresa's statement makes so much sense, that if they wanted any sort of answers as to why, he didn't give that to them. Nothing. At the end of the hearing, Washburn was sentenced to 26 and a half years in prison. One month after Tacoma cold case detectives arrested Robert Washburn, in early June of 2018, Parabon Nanolabs found a genetic genealogy match to the DNA submitted in Michelle Welch's case. Or more accurately, Kath, they found two matches. Parabon was able to narrow down the possible suspects to two brothers who lived in the north end of Tacoma, which is where the Bastions lived, mm-hmm. in 1986. 
On June 4th, which this is the next day after they received this information from Parabon, police detectives began surveillance of one of the brothers' homes. It didn't say why. It didn't say if the other brother didn't live in state, if the other brother was deceased, anything like that. Right. But the person who they were surveilling was a man named Gary Hartman, who was 33 at the time of Michelle's murder. And he was living in nearby Lakewood, Washington, which was about 10 miles south of Tacoma. Kath, he was a married father of two who was a nurse at Western State Hospital, and he had no criminal record. So what happened was, Kathy, so they're surveilling him. The day after they started surveilling him, Hartman left his home, got in his car and drove to work. Shortly after he arrived at work, he and a co-worker left to go get breakfast. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of job. I was thinking that too. <laughs> Sounds like it was a fast food restaurant, but the detective sat at a table about 10 feet away from Hartman and his co-worker mm-hmm. and watched what he was eating and what kind of DNA he might be leaving. Right. When he got up to leave, he did not leave a cup, but the detective had noticed him wiping his mouth several times with a paper napkin and putting it in a bag that he left on the table when he got up. An employee got to the table before the detective did and grabbed the bag to go throw it away. So the detective approached this person and said, hey, can I have the trash? Right. (laughs) So the napkin was sent to the state crime lab for comparison to the DNA profile they had of Michelle Welch's killer. And it was a match. Wow. Wow. On Friday, June 22nd, 2018, Gary Hartman was charged with the first degree murder and rape of Michelle Welch. Now, unlike Robert Washburn, Hartman did not agree to a plea deal. Instead, he requested a bench trial, which, as you know, is where there's no jury. And instead, the judge decides both the facts of the case and then applies the law to it. My question for you, attorney, is why would somebody request a bench trial instead of a jury trial? Frankly, I don't know. Okay. I don't necessarily think it's a good... that's helpful. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome for the answer. But I'm wondering if he just didn't want as much publicity. It probably would have been a faster process and he probably just wanted to roll the dice and get it over with. However, in a criminal trial, you always want a jury because all it takes is one person to create a mistrial. And 30-year-old DNA? I'm thinking you might be able to create reasonable doubt. Something. How is it collected? How is it stored? How is it handled? Did it degrade? Yeah. Was there any cross-contamination? That kind of thing. And so a judge is not going to be swayed by emotion or any of that that juries get swayed by. A judge is just going to look at the facts. And I'm shocked that this decision was made. So on March 22nd, 2022, Judge Stanley Rumbaugh found Gary Hartman guilty of raping and murdering 12-year-old Michelle Welch. A sobbing Hartman said in court, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. God knows I'm sorry. That doesn't help. I'm just sorry. Before sentencing, Judge Rumbaugh gave Michelle's family a chance to address the court. Barbara Leonard, Michelle's mother, said, I say lock him up and throw away the key. And now he will pay the price. However, it will not bring her back, but justice will have been served. I just pray that he can find repentance and forgiveness with God. Michelle's sisters, Nicole and Angela, made statements expressing similar sentiments to their mother's. But Nicola added that she forgave Hartman, but that forgiveness does not mean forgetting. It is remembering without pain. Afterward, the judge sentenced Gary Hartman to the maximum term allowed, 320 months or 26 years and six months in prison. This is the same term Washburn was given. Starting in 2015, Mrs. Bastion, Jenny's mom, worked with a Washington state representative to introduce a number of bills to expand the pool of criminals from whom DNA can be collected after criminal convictions. 
According to KOMO-TV in Tacoma, in 2018, legislation was passed to expand DNA collection to any adult or juvenile convicted of a felony or convicted of indecent exposure in CAF. They also included deceased sex offenders. And the legislation, by the way, had bipartisan support. Five months after Washburn's guilty plea on May 21, 2019, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, with Patricia Bastian by his side, signed the new legislation, which was then named Jennifer and Michelle's Law. That's great. Yeah. Jenny Bastian's gravestone has a quote on it that says, Some people come into our lives and quickly go. Some stay a while and leave footprints on our hearts and we are never the same. So our downloads are steadily on the rise and it's because of you guys. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you so much for downloading us. It actually helps us in so many ways. And if you haven't left us a review on Apple, please do so. Or Spotify. Only if it's going to be nice though. Exactly. <laughs> we don't want to hear it if it's nasty. <laughs> we want others to listen to us too. Exactly. <laughs> But thanks so much. We totally appreciate you guys. And if you're not following us on social media, please do so at Killer Destinations Podcast. On Instagram and Facebook. Thank you. <laughs> I knew I was supposed to say that. <laughs> Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.